Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, 2020, of course, is an anniversary year. It's 1920 that the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified. That granted many women in the nation the right to vote for the first time. Uh, other anniversaries, uh, Utah women had been allowed to vote. Uh, then that was taken away and, uh, under statehood. Um, 1895, uh, that was an anniversary. Then Voting Rights Act of uh, 1965. Um, and so as a part of all these anniversaries, Utah State University is hosting an interdisciplinary symposium on March 19th and 20th, commemorating those uh, events, gave political rights to women. It also reflects ongoing struggles for access to the vote. It's a voting rights symposium. And as a part of that, there will be a screening of several films from the series Unladylike 2020 with discussion and introduction by executive producer Sandra Ratley. That screening will be on Friday, March 20th, 6 p.m. at the Utah Theater in Logan. And uh, Sandra Ratley is joining us uh, today. Sandra Ratley is uh, executive producer of Unladylike 2020. Uh, she has been involved in uh, seminal documentary projects before, including Peabody Award-winning series Wade in the Water on African-American sacred music produced with the Smithsonian Institution and Making the Music, hosted by Wynton Marsalis. She's also executive producer of PBS Digital Studios series, Read Awakening. And uh, uh, NPR listeners will be interested to know that uh, she was a former vice president for cultural programming in NPR, where she launched the weekly show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Sandra Rettley, uh, welcome to the program. Tom, it's so great to be with you. Thank you so much for making time to talk to me today. Well, thank you for taking time. Uh, interesting project. I want to jump into this. Uh, uh, I can't leave this, though. NPR listeners are all familiar with the, with the now juggernaut, wait, wait, don't tell me. Uh, you were there at the beginning, apparently? I was there at the beginning. That was a project that I started as the VP of Cultural Programming, Um it was um, a real great undertaking, actually, uh, in terms of really uh, trying to approach news um, from, I won't say a comedic point of view, but trying to find uh, the humor and the sarcasm in many of the headlines of the day. So that, that's a great, it was a great accomplishment, and it's a tribute to the audience appeal of that program that it is still standing and going strong. Did you, I don't know, you launch a program and you hope it's going to, you know, be successful. Did did you foresee the success it has had? Well, um, Doug Berman, who was the uh, producer of uh, Car Talk, and, and I came up with that together. And so Doug obviously had the formula down for creating a successful property. So um, I think I can't take all the credit. Uh, Doug had a lot to do with it. We had some really strong writers. And so, um, you know, when I look at um, many people even say that they get their information from some of the TV shows and talk shows that are hosted by comedians. And uh, so I, I feel as if Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me was almost ahead of its time in terms of creating a program like that. And that prototype has um, has seen its way on TV and cable and uh, and radio, more and more shows like that. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, certainly, I think, it's on most every station and uh, still going strong. Uh, so let's talk about Unladylike uh, 2020, uh, the series of uh, short uh, films. Um, what's, uh, well, tell me about how this began. Well, uh, my co-executive producer, Charlotte Mangan, tells a story about going to the Intrepid Museum in New York with her two sons and uh, seeing a, uh, a book displayed and an author talk. Um, and uh, the title of the book was, um, was Fly Eloise, and it was about a woman who was a pilot, a prominent pilot uh, in the in the time period over 100 years ago and flew under all three bridges in New York. And it began a, a query and a quest for her as to how come she didn't know about this woman and were there more women like her. And she was one of the first people I know that actually had an awareness of the 2020 anniversary of the centennial of women's suffrage and, and the passage of the 19th Amendment. And she came to me and said, I have this dream project. I'd like to be able to talk about some of the heroines 
uh, and women who accomplish great things, not just in suffrage, but suffrage, I guess you could say, broadly defined in terms of human rights and civil rights, but also just great adventurers who accomplished amazing things and whose stories have been left off the pages of history or aren't taught in schools and curriculums. So it, it started a, a major investigation for us. We got some early funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities. We identified 250 women initially to, um, to possibly focus on, and we had a group of scholars, some advisors, humanities scholars, that came together with us and looked at our long list of all of our research, and um, we ended up with the 26 women that we are focusing on now, and we're going to be distributing a film a week every Wednesday. Last Wednesday was our first release, uh, digital distribution of a 10-minute film on African-American aviator Bessie Coleman, the first African-American woman to be licensed as a pilot, first African-American to be piloted internationally. And um, so this Wednesday, we're looking at Grace Abbott tomorrow, who was in 1920 the highest-ranking woman in government. And so every week, from now, every Wednesday from now until August 26th, which is actually uh, considered Women's Equality Day, the day that the 19th Amendment was actually ratified, we're going to be focusing on a different woman. And um, we feel like in some ways, Tom, we're really creating a new adventure genre because uh, some of the accomplishments of these women, I, I think, is is absolutely unbelievable. And it's unbelievable. Even today, it would be unbelievable, but particularly unbelievable because these women were functioning between the 1890 and 1920 before women had the right to vote. And when women's roles were really narrowly prescribed in society, and uh, most women didn't have jobs, weren't able to go to college, and in some cases, women were actually criminalized by wearing pants in public. Uh, once women were married, they weren't supposed to work, they were supposed to stay home and take care of their husbands and children. So these women really defied amazing odds to accomplish great things, and we want to tell their story. Now, many of these women uh, aren't very well known, right? That's, I mean, that's one of the great virtues of a series like this. Um, I, I watched four of the films you sent me links to, and I I was barely aware of most of them. I'd, I'd been a little aware of uh, Anna Mae Wong, but uh, you know Bessie Coleman and uh, Inez Mejia and uh, Wilhelmina Fleming. We'll talk about those as we go along. Um, so why is the... Uh, tell me about the title, Unladylike. Well, the, um, the title, Unladylike, basically is... Um, uh, there is a... There is a journalist whose name is Louise Bryant, and in 1913, she made a statement and said, I don't want to be treated like a lady. I want to be treated like a human being. And um, the whole idea of being ladylike and, um, again, these prescribed norms for women, um, that, that women were kind of seen and not heard and were in the background playing support roles, et cetera, um, in society, um, Louise was saying that, that she didn't want to be narrowly defined in that way. And so our title of um, the series really derives from that statement, but also that the women that were profiling were all really in their own individual ways, and not necessarily in political ways, but in, in their personal accomplishments, were obviously kind of resisting but to that narrow definition of what um, a lady was. And many of the women, interestingly enough, in that time period, because the characterization of women as nurturers and as the keepers of the home and family, but also those who were concerned about issues of quality of life and care about children, etc., in broader society often played on that role to expand it to ensure that policies were in place, that laws were pl were passed, um, to help protect the most vulnerable in society. So uh, these women redefined the role of women and redefined what, in quotes, ladylike men. Mm. You also noticed on the website you quote uh, historian Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, her famous uh, quote, well-behaved women seldom make history. 
Absolutely. That's also true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it, you know, well-behaved for, for the times, right? The, because the, the social norms were so strict in, in many of these uh, years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you, you, you mentioned, for example, um, uh, you mentioned, for example, uh, Enos Mexia. I mean, there's a, there's a woman who short that we're going to be, a, a portrait we're going to be showing, um, uh, at the Logan Theater, Louise Arner Bullate, who was the first woman to lead an Arctic expedition. And she wasn't even a trained scientist, but she just got very, um, enamored with this whole idea that in this time period that explorers were really considered to be kind of rock stars. And so she decided that she was going to basically teach herself um, about the Arctic. It was just a place that she wanted to go, and she uh, planned seven expeditions, and she funded them herself because uh, her father, uh, her parents died, and she inherited some, some money, and she went to Greenland, and she filmed and, and photographed the, the topography there that is still being used by um, scientists to look at glacial features and look at what's going on with the glacial ice there. And she created a, a dark room on her own ship and took scientists with her and uh, did her own photographs. And it's, it's amazing that, again, she did this between 1926 and 1941. And some of the scientists that we've talked to since about these accomplishments say they don't even understand without protective gear how she was able to accomplish what she did. Another woman we're featuring, um, um, Annie Smith Peck, uh, peaked, climbed the seven highest peaks um, in the world. And when the New York Times reported on her, they didn't report that she made the climb. The thing that was so unusual was they said that she climbed in pants and not and not a petticoat, not in a skirt. <laughs> and when she got um, to one of the highest peaks, she put up a sign saying, you know, uh, women need the vote. So it's just amazing to me that in this particular time period, considering the technological limitations, considering the societal limitations, what uh, these women accomplish. Um, I just wrote a script about a woman, Sonora Webster Carter. The Disney made a movie about her um, who dived off of uh, the steel pier at Atlantic City on a horse into a uh, 40 feet into a tank of water, and um, one time she did it after doing it for seven years, and she she didn't close her eyes, and her retina dislocated, and she went blind, and she continued to do the act for 11 years after that. I mean, who does that? Mm. <laughs> so these women, I, I mean... I mean, sometimes when I when I am doing the research, when we're when our research team, when we're doing the research on these women, it, it, it again considering the time period, their accomplishments are absolutely phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Um, we have women who were staring down the Klan by themselves and uh, reversing all kinds of um, uh, things that are happening in society and and taking action. So. I'm really inspired by their courage. One of the things that we're doing in each of these episodes is also interviewing a modern-day woman who's operating in the same field as the uh, historical heroine that we're focusing on, and they're putting their accomplishments into context so that we do have a sense of how maybe the field has changed and how there may still be issues that, that need to be resolved relative to glass ceilings or limitations that may limit women and girls in these particular fields. So we feel as if we're not just telling a story about history, but we're also contemporizing it and bringing it into a modern-day context. Um, I'd like to maybe uh, play an example of that. Uh, in fact, I selected a, a short clip from the, the Bessie Coleman film um, featuring uh, uh, Colonel Merrill Tengsdahl, uh, who flies U-2, uh, those incredible... Those, so-called spy planes that fly so incredibly high. Um, tell me briefly about Bessie Coleman, and then I want to play this uh, clip. Well, Bessie Coleman's story I find astounding um, because she was born in 1892, 
And um, as the historian who's interviewed in this film tells us, she was literally born on a dirt floor. Um, She was the daughter of sharecroppers in rural Texas. She picked cotton with her mother, one of 13 children. And um, she made the trip from the South to Chicago and was working in a barber shop. And her brother, who had been in... uh, uh, had been overseas in, in World War One, and other men were talking about European women who had flown um, in the war. And she just decided, as she was filing someone's nails, she just decided then and there that she was going to become a pilot. And people laughed at her and said, you've got to be kidding. How could you possibly do that? And um, she was able to get backing from... Uh, a financier, um, African-American man who ran the Chicago Defender newspaper. She taught herself French. She got on a a big ship and went to Paris because she could not find anyone in the United States who would teach her to fly. She went to a flying school, then went to a second training to learn aerial stunts, and then came back to the United States and um, began to do these shows around the country um, in this performance they call barnstorming, doing extremely dangerous stunts, walking on wings. And um, and these planes were, were very early model planes, um, open air. And so what she did was really justifying, absolutely. And just flying the plane, the, the, the cockpit is open, right? So you're, you're doing figure yeah, eights and, and tricks. Yeah. That's dangerous, too, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, to be doing a figure eight in a in an open cockpit takes more than guts. <laughs> yeah, Bessie Coleman's uh, so extraordinary because she was so determined that she's finding no one to teach her to fly a plane. Uh, she had to go to France, I think, to to learn. Yes, absolutely, she yeah. did. Um, she went. She traveled to France to train as a pilot, and in 1921, she became the first African American to obtain an international license to fly. Yeah. And well, um, when she came back to the U.S., her nickname was Queen Bess. Queen Bess. World's greatest yeah. woman flyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- those barnstorming, those films, <laughs> just, boy, the, the hair on the back of my neck, you know. It's uh, very, very dangerous. Uh, so let's hear this. So as you mentioned, in each of the films, uh, you, you fast forward to a, a, a woman, contemporary woman who's been, I guess, inspired or, or brings forward contemporary issues. In this case, in the Bessie Coleman film, uh, you interviewed uh, Meryl Tengsdahl. Uh, she's a colonel in the, in the Air Force and uh, the first and only African-American woman to fly uh, the U-2 spy plane used for specialized high-altitude reconnaissance missions. Uh, let's, let's hear this. This is uh, from the Bessie Coleman film. To be a pilot, you have to be adventurous. There's a fearless factor to it. I'm the first and only black female to fly the U-2 aircraft. We don't have a lot of women in aviation. So our cadre is very small. Bessie Coleman was able to up the bar in terms of who could fly, despite gender and racial barriers of that time. Uh, so that's uh, just a brief uh, clip uh, featuring Colonel Tengstall. Uh, so she references Bessie Coleman, uh, inspired by her, but also points out there's still not a lot of women in aviation. It's pretty interesting, uh, again, that um, as she noted, of course, she's she's um, in the military, but, uh, but also in terms of commercial pilots, uh, FAA reports that uh, probably 12% or less of all licensed pilots in the United States are women. And um, so for a couple of screening events, uh, one of our partners uh, for these films is JetBlue, and we had two JetBlue pilots come to a screening of Bessie Coleman at a, at a girls' club um, in New York and to talk about the whole idea of, of pursuing a career in aviation we have come some time, uh, some ways, made some progress since the time of Bessie Coleman, obviously. But things are uh, still. This is still a field in which women are really grossly underrepresented. So they were encouraging young girls to not to, to consider when they're looking at STEM careers, when they're looking at other options, professional options. You know, to consider aviation. It was very exciting to actually uh, see two women pilots talk about their continued struggle 
in in modern times. And uh, it's very powerful to have role models, right? If you have no role models, it's uh, it's very hard. That's essentially what women you're profiling here are doing, right? They they were pioneers. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I don't know who said it, but there is a saying that says um, you can't be it if you if you don't see it. And so uh, we do think it's really important, not just for young girls, but for young boys, for parents, for teachers, to really, really um, to know these stories and um, to really elevate them. And to, I mean, you know, there are a couple of women I know growing up, people used to talk about Annie Oakley as a sharpshooter. Um, you know, there were... You know, a couple of women, as you said, that maybe we heard about, but I don't think any of us had the possible notion how many there were who uh, women there were that were achieving at this level. So um, we're very excited that with our partners, WNAT, uh, Kids Educational Media, we're also creating curriculum to support the stories, built around the stories of each of these 26 women that we're featuring so that students in grades 6 through 12, hopefully, that these stories will live on beyond um, their, uh, you know, beyond just listening one time, that the information will be available for them in classrooms and can be really institutionalized in the teaching of American history. Why, why aren't these stories better known? They're incredible stories. Why aren't they better known uh, up till this point? Well, I think there are many factors um, that we could possibly point to. Um, you know, it, it's it's very interesting that um, when we look at some of the women, um, that the reason that they were able to accomplish great things is that um, maybe they came from, you know, well-to-do families, or in the case of some of the uh, white women, for example, um, or some of the women actually were affiliated with organizations, such as Mary Church Terrell uh, was one of the founders of the NAACP. Um, and so there may um, be some record. But um, one of the things that we found in even looking at the 250 women, the list we started with, that um, we couldn't tell their stories because there wasn't enough um, archival material. There wasn't enough visual material, there weren't stills, there weren't any, any uh, motion pictures, or historians hadn't actually done the research um, to be able to uh, have source material or have people for us to interview. So I think that, um, as we're describing in this time period, there were a lot of obstacles to women achieving, and um, there was a lot of resistance to the leadership of women and to, the, and to the visibility of women, to women being outspoken and having a voice. So I think that um, a lot of the factors of the time period were factors that really did lend themselves to these stories um, being unknown. So we're, uh, we're updating all of that. We, we invite everyone to, um, to check out our website. And that is www.unladylike2020.com to check out the American Masters YouTube channel, to also check out uh, pbsamericanmasters.com. Uh, and, um, and these stories, again, are not just for and about women. They're stories that we feel are, are so interesting that they will appeal to everybody, to young girls, boys, men, women, to... Uh, however you identify, these are stories that we think that really talk about the human spirit and talk about the ways in which um, our our current times are really shaped by the courage and the tenacity, the vision and the innovation of, of women. Uh, let's take a break, and we'll come back with much more, including some more stories. We have some more sound clips from a couple of the films as well. Um, we're talking with the executive uh, director of a film series called Unladylike 2020, uh, Sandra Ratley. And as uh, Sandra Ratley just said, you can go uh, see much more at uh, unladylike.2020.com, unladylike2020.com, also American Masters. Um, and uh, these films are airing, what, every Wednesday, you said, on PBS? 
they are being distributed online. Online, so okay. We're gonna we're releasing a film every Wednesday, but you can um, you can you can see as many of them as you like because they are going to be on PBS. Um, dot com into perpetuity. So this is going to be a historical reference and resource that's going to be around for for forever beyond um, beyond you know this anniversary beyond 2020. And uh, here in the northern Utah area, you have a chance to uh, come and uh, be part of an event. Uh, several of the films from Unladylike 2020 will be screened at the Utah Theater in Logan. That's on Friday, March 20th, 6 p.m., as a part of USU's Voting Rights Symposium. And Sandra Ratley will be there uh, with introduction and discussion about those uh, films. So that, again, is Friday, March 20th, 6 p.m., Utah Theater in Logan, uh, Unladylike 2020, as part of the USU's Voting Rights uh, Symposium. Uh, we'll have much more following this break. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour, is Sandra Ratley. She is executive producer of the uh, film series Unladylike 2020, uh, which uh, profiles uh, diverse and little-known American women from the turn of the 20th century and contemporary women who follow in their footsteps. And we're hearing some of these incredible stories, little-known stories in many cases. And so Unladylike 2020 is uh, bringing these uh, stories to light. And uh, you can find out much more at the website, unladylike2020.com, also at uh, PBS's American Masters uh, website as well. And I should mention here that uh, you're able to come and uh, view several of these films um, in a screening as a part of USU's Voting Rights Symposium. That's happening on Friday, March 20th at 6 p.m. in the Utah Theater in Logan. And uh, Sandra Ratley will be here to uh, discuss, uh, to introduce the films and uh, lead a discussion about uh, about the films. Uh, Sandra Ratley, before we uh, t- talk about more of these incredible stories, um, something from your bio caught my attention. Uh, you were press spokesperson for Nelson Mandela in his first uh, U.S. tour. How? Uh, tell me about that experience. What was that like? <laughs> Oh my, Tom! <laughs> That's a whole other radio show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I um, I had the uh, distinct pleasure of producing a four-part documentary on Nelson Mandela's life while he was still in prison, and as a result of that, I interacted with um, with his then wife, Winnie Mandela. Um, many people that he had been in in prison with, and um, as a result of that rapport, and as a result of producing those four half hours um, called Nelson Mandela, Africa's Noblest Son, um, I got recruited to um, to be a part of his entourage um, once he was released from prison, and he made a, he came right to the states and did a a ten city tour and. Uh, First stop was New York, ticker tape parade, and 
um, travel to Boston and Houston and the West Coast, et cetera. And so I can say that um, I've had many astounding uh, experiences of my life, but that was really probably one of the, uh, the greatest, uh, I would say, high points. Um, it was very hard for me um, after traveling around with Nelson Mandela and um, having, you know, the police uh, uh, stopping traffic for us, you know, and then I had to come home and lead a normal life. It was kind of hard. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very exciting. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been quite the uh, quite the transition. You're... Yeah, it, it was it was it, it was kind of difficult coming coming back down to earth, but. Mm. Um, but I, I um, was uh, working with his media team, actually helped in terms of, of some speech writing and media management. And um, I, I went, this was even before Oprah Winfrey was on the air, I went, I went with Mrs. Mandela to be on the Donahue show. So um, it, was, it was quite a while ago, and, and I really appreciate having been a part of that history. We'll get back to these, these incredible stories from Adelaide 2020, but a couple more things from your, your bio. You, uh, uh, you were involved in Making the Music, hosted by Wynton Marsalis. Did you interact with Mr. Marsalis? Oh, yes, I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I did. Um, Wynton uh, was, the, um, was the host of that show, so even though you know he has and still maintains a very active touring schedule, he blocked out large blocks of time where he came and stayed in D.C. Um, and, um, you know, so that he could be actively involved in the development of that series. And I remember a very early conversation with him when he was saying that he didn't understand how radio production worked. He didn't really understand how we were going to construct narratives to talk about how jazz musicians made music. And so... I tried to come up with this metaphor for him, talking about um, him having a band and him playing solos and how, in the context of, of jazz improvisation, how at different times people played as a chorus or, or t- sometimes different voices would, would stand out. And so I tried to, to draw a parallel with how we construct documentaries. And in that particular instance, uh, radio documentaries to give him a sense of how the shows would be constructed in some ways to mirror the process of jazz improvisation. Uh, just one more thing from your bio. I want to talk briefly about to wade in the water. This is uh, this is a pretty pretty important milestone. It won the Peabody. Um, t- tell me about that. African-American sacred music. Well, that was something that... Um, uh, we produced in partnership with the Smithsonian Institution, and the Smithsonian has uh, Smithsonian Records had a huge uh, cache, if you will, of early, early recordings of African American sacred music. So this was uh, again a historical documentation of 200 years and kind of the evolution of music from the time African Americans came to this country as expressed through sacred song and music. And so that series was hosted by Dr. Bernice Johnson Reagan, and uh, who was who is a major historian um, in this area of African-American sacred uh, music text, as a musician and singer herself. And um, so that project actually took four years. It, it was a real major undertaking, again, with funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities. And so we looked at the influence of African-American sacred music on jazz, the influence of African-American sacred music on classical music, and as well on contemporary music. And we traveled all over the country to interview folks to do live recordings. And that was um, a series of, of 26 one-hour programs. And uh, National Public Radio just um, celebrated the 30th anniversary of that series and re-released all of those programs. And so if you go to npr.com, I'm sorry, npr.org, and uh, search Wade in the Water, you can find all of those shows. And uh, 
It still holds up. The music is incredible. And so I would encourage anyone who is a music fan to check out NPR.org and to search for Wade in the Water. Yeah, certainly, it's a wonderful series. Uh, so, Sandra Rudley, I understand that you you have you need to, to uh, be getting going here. We're gonna um, uh, let's take a break. We'll come back with uh, Charlotte Manchin, who's the series uh, creator. Uh, so, Sandra Rutley, th- thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Tom, it was so wonderful getting a chance to talk to you, and um, uh, and I look forward to being in Utah. And um, thanks for all the work that you're doing, and thanks for making some time to talk about Unladylike 2020. Well, Sandra Ratley will be in Utah March 20th. Uh, she'll be there at the screening and uh, lead an introduction discussion of the film. She's executive producer of, uh, uh, director, producer and director of uh, Unladylike 2020. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, let's do take a break, uh, and then when we come back, uh, we'll be joined by the series creator for Unladylike 2020, Charlotte Mangin. Um More following this. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking about the uh, film series Unladylike 2020. Several of the f- uh, short films from that series will be shown uh, in a screening on Friday, March 20th, 6 p.m. at the Utah Theater in Logan. The uh, executive producer, Sandra Ratley, will be there to uh, lead uh, introduction and discussion of the films. And this is a part of uh, USU's Voting Rights Symposium, which is happening on March 19th and 20th. We talked with Sandra Ratley. Now we bring in Charlotte Mangin, who's series creator, and executive producer, director, and writer of Unladylike 2020. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We appreciate it. Um, I should say you're an award-winning documentary filmmaker and creator, producer, and director of Unladylike 2020. Spent five years in, on the production staff of National Geographic Television and Film, reporting from the jungles of Amazon to the Himalayan mountains. Five years as story producer for PBS's award-winning international affairs series, Wide Angle. And hour-long uh, program, Class of 2006, about women's rights in Morocco, won an international documentary award. That's just uh, some of your awards. Um, so um, we talked with Sandra Ratley about the, the genesis of this. I'd like to maybe revisit that because uh, go right to the source. Uh, I understand you're the creator of this, sure. this film. How, how, did this, how did this start? Uh, so, at the risk of repeating a story that Sandy may have already shared with you, um, several years ago I brought my two little boys to the Intrepid Museum, which is an aircraft carrier um, aviation museum in New York. And we happened to be there on a day that a children's book author was doing a book launch for a story called Soar Eleanor, which was based on, on the true life of Eleanor Smith, who Uh, in the early 1920s, was the youngest licensed pilot in the world. At age 16, she got her license. And the men at her airfield didn't believe that, quote, a girl could fly, and they dared her to fly under a bridge. You may know this was the time when what's known as barnstorming, all these crazy aerial stunts, was all the rage. And so she flew under all four bridges of the East River to really prove herself to them and went on to become this extraordinary test pilot, broke a number of endurance records, and I was just in awe of this story. 
so fascinated, inspired, and also really frustrated. Why have I never heard of Eleanor Smith? I thought there was only Amelia Earhart, right? So I started to research her, and she led me to other women in aviation, and they led me to women in other professional fields, and it just grew and grew into this treasure trove of stories from the turn of the 20th century, which you may know is a time in U.S. history when when there's a lot of firsts happening. Women are really breaking into professional fields for the first time, and and so it's a really fascinating era of change and accomplishment and and um, record-setting and breaking. And once you jump into the research, you find, you know, Sandra Ratley was saying she'd researched, what, 200 or something stories? You can only do, what, 26 in this series. That must be tough to narrow it down. Yes, yeah, we ended up um, putting together an advisory board of historians and uh, women and gender studies experts to help us narrow our research down, indeed, from, I think, about 250 different stories to the 26 that we're featuring for American Masters. Um, and our criteria were a combination of, uh, well, obviously, archive had to exist. <laughs> and, and for many of these women, you know, there was maybe one or two photographs available of them, if that, because they often didn't make it into the history books and are fairly unsung. Um, there had to be enough biographical details known about them to really turn it into a compelling documentary. Um, And in addition, we wanted to make sure that we represented a wide diversity of of America. So Mm. in terms of racial ethnic background, the professional fields that they chose, the geographical origins that they came from, and and that we were really reflecting the experience of women from all different socioeconomic backgrounds uh, in America at the time. So it was a fascinating journey. And um, and then from there, you know, digging deep into the biographies, if they've been written for some of these women, biographies have yet to be written, um, deep into archival collections and tracking down descendants when, when possible. I've gotten the chance to interview, you know, the great, great granddaughters of these women, which is super exciting. Um, and and then, as, as Sandy may have mentioned, because archive is limited, we early on partnered with an artist who is not only bringing the black and white archive to life and color, but also creating animations to fill in the visual gaps when we just simply can't find archival imagery to tell a certain scene in her in her life story. Um, so it's got this really exciting and hip um, look to it. It's, it's not a typical historical documentary project. Yeah, yeah, I found that to be the true as well. It kind of modernizes it. Uh, I'd like to uh, tell some more stories. Um, your, your team sent me uh, four of the, of the short films. I really enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. We talked about Bessie Coleman. Uh, I wonder if we talk in brief about Inez, uh, is it Mejia? Um, Mejia, yes. Yes. She was so fascinating. So she um, was a Mexican-American who became a botanist in her 50s. She She came to her career very late in life at a time when Women in STEM fields were few and far between. Um, she developed a love for plant collecting and pressing and ended up discovering over 500 new species uh, of plants in the course of, I think, 13 years of expeditions all across the Western Hemisphere. She traveled from Alaska all the way down to Tierra del Fuego in, at the tip of Argentina, often traveling alone with local guides. Um, because she was a Spanish speaker, uh, it, it gave her access in Latin America to places that, that perhaps others may not have had, had access to. She you know, spent two years in the Amazon jungles, <laughs> traveling by steamship and canoe down the Amazon River, collecting plants along the way. And, um, and her, um, her specimens are, are still in use today in uh, botanical institutions all over the, the country. So really fascinating character. Yeah, this was, uh, I mean, inspirational. She went back, she went, well, not back, she went to college at age 51, started her career officially at age 55. Um, mm-hmm. Indeed. A whole second act for her. Uh, it's not, yes, it's never too late <laughs> yeah. to discover your passion. Yeah, and she's got all these plants named after her, yeah. 
Um, uh, I want to play a clip from the film on uh, Wilhelmina Fleming. Uh, she was uh, very important in the field of astronomy um, in physics. Um, so uh, just to set up the clip that I have prepared here, she, um, she lost her husband. We, I think in the film they say we don't know whether he died or, or left, but she was pregnant. And uh, so she uh, took up a, a job as a maid for, happened to be uh, a famous astronomer at Harvard, um, and so this, this clip on Wilhelmina Fleming, we pick up uh, what Dr. Pickering, he, he hit upon uh, something, how he could reduce his costs and, and uh, further his, his research. To support his new approach to astronomy, Pickering did something highly unusual. He hired women. When he arrived at the observatory, he found several women already working there as computers to calculate the actual positions of stars. And Pickering saw an advantage to it because women were cheaper than men and didn't need any advanced education to do the jobs given to them. None of the women at first ever used the telescopes. They just had to be good at math and willing. In many things, women's patience, perseverance, and method make her man superior. Let us hope that in astronomy, she may prove herself his equal. So that's from the film on uh, Wilhelmina Fleming. I uh, should mention that she was working the maid, but uh, Dr. Pickering uh, discovered she was bright and put her to work in, in, his, in his lab. But she... Uh, she went on to have quite the career, including, uh, from the film, that uh, she protested the unequal pay, unsuccessfully, I think. Indeed, yes. She, she became the, the first curator of astronomical photographs at Harvard and, and the first woman to hold a Harvard University title, in fact. Um, and with, along with Pickering, basically created a new classification system for stars um, based on spectra, the, you know, the, the light <laughs> that stars emit, uh, which a version of which is still in use by astronomers today, mm. um, as well as discovering a number of, of new stars and what we now know as white dwarves and uh, various other celestial bodies. Um, and again, someone who had you know no education. <laughs> she just learned on on the spot. <laughs> and the, the, those women uh, were apparently working six days a week. Uh, and uh, there's a quote in the film, I mean, Fleming says, don't they realize we, you know, we have to go back. <laughs> we have a whole other job raising our families. Our families, yes. And she was a single mom mm -hmm. uh, and managed to put her son through MIT. Um, so really impressive. Yeah. Uh, I want to end with the, the, another film that you sent me on um, actress Anna Mae Wong. Uh, fascinating, mm -hmm. fascinating character, and I'd been a little familiar with her, seen, you know, a couple of her films. Um, she started out in the silent era, had quite the career. Uh, let's hear this uh, clip from, from, from this film talking about uh, limitations in this era on uh, what an Asian actress could, could or could not do in film. She's known for her haircut, the anime Wong bangs. Having a complexion which is slightly darker than white becomes incredibly chic. Despite her growing fame, Wong continued to be cast in supporting roles as either Lotus Blossoms or Dragon Ladies. It was a time of anti-miscegenation laws, so interracial kissing was still an issue in the United States. It was next to impossible to have anime Wong kiss on screen or marry a white man. Wong soon reached a breaking point with Hollywood casting practices. Wong was passed over for the lead role in the movie Crimson City, and to add insult to injury, was even told to teach the white lead how to use chopsticks. Yeah, that's uh, so indication of uh, some of the difficulties. Difficulty seems like a mild word. Uh, Anime Wong, a very determined person, she she headed to Europe to further her career. Yes, yes, and there uh, managed to get some leading lady roles um, in Germany, in France, in England. She taught herself German and French. Uh, she acted in in a play with 
um, Laurence Olivier uh, at the start of his career. Um, so there was there was still racism and, and objectification, but less so in Europe. Mm. Uh, I just want to give you a chance to just have a couple of minutes left to, to uh, I don't know, a, a takeaway from this. What uh, what have you learned? What what would what would you like people to most take away from Unladylike 2020 series? Absolutely. Well, well, first of all, I've learned the incredible perseverance and um, and commitment of women to, despite all odds, <laughs> pursue their passions, um, including at a time in U.S. history when you know the odds were, were definitely stacked against them, uh, both in terms of gender and racial discrimination. Um, and sadly, many of them didn't make it into certainly my history classrooms growing up. Um, so I really am excited that we're, we have um, PBS Learning Media creating an educational curriculum that will go out to 1.6 million educators around the country uh, with middle and high school lesson plans. So I'm hopeful that a new generation of children will actually know these women's stories and be inspired by them to... Um, you know, to forge their own way in life. So really uh, just recognizing the shoulders that we all stand upon uh, and how far we've come when it comes to gender equality and and yet still what remains to be done. Um, In each of our episodes, we've interviewed modern-day women in the same professional fields who are essentially walking in the footsteps of, of these women from the past, and they make it clear to us you know, how many disparities do still exist and that there are, shockingly, still firsts and onlys happening today. So, for instance, you mentioned Bessie Coleman, um, who was the first African-American woman aviator. For her story, we interview um, uh, a woman who is the first and still only black woman to fly the U-2 plane for the U.S. Air Force. She's a colonel in, in the U.S. Air Force. Um, and there are only 7% of pilots today that are women. We've gone from zero to seven in, in the past hundred years. Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of work still remains to be done societally um, and, and within each of our families, I think, to remember that women can do anything. And um, and I chose this name Unladylike because to me it it, it means being bold and not, adhering to the status quo um, and, and you know, owning your ambition and, and not taking no for an answer. Very, very well, very well said. Um, we'll end it there. We're out of time. Charlotte Mangin has uh, joined us. Uh, she's series creator for Unladylike 2020. And uh, if you're going to be in northern Utah area later this month, you'll have an opportunity to uh, come interact with the executive producer, Sandra Ratley. Uh, she'll be introducing and leading discussion on several of the films. That screening will be on Friday, March 20th, 6 p.m. in the Utah Theater in Logan as a part of the USU Voting Rights Symposium. More information on Unladylike 2020 can be found at the website, unladylike2020.com. So, uh, Charlotte Manjin, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. All the best. All the best to you as well. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah.